What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where twice a week together, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's and Bitcoin's most influential leaders, Web3, film, princes, politicians, those who are building from the ground floor grassroots movements, and everyone in between to truly understand how this Bitcoin movement came to be, how it turned into like the world of smart contracts, how it turned into the crypto world today. What does it mean for all of us, our friends, our families? What it means for the internet as we know it? What does it mean for the for the world that we live every day? And we get some fun. We get to have some fun along the way. I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. I just got back from two weeks in the Cannes Film Festival uh, down in, in the south of France where hundreds of thousands of people descended to watch movies to really enjoy and embrace the art of cinema. I uh, really got to see uh, th- that whole world of of like who's doing what in Web three and film. I got to watch uh, some some really cool movies. My wife Courtney and I, who's an actor, we were able to like follow through and put different film projects together and see what was going on. And then we headed over to Monaco, <clears throat> and then we headed over to Monaco for the um, Coin Agenda, that is run by. Good friend of mine, Michael Turpin. We've had him on the show. Michael is the founder of Bit Angels, the first angel group of investors for Bitcoin back in oh my god, 2013. And he's still at it. He's still chugging along. He's still launching amazing companies, investing in them. You know, we talk about people who take the money that they've made in the space and reinvest it in the space. And Michael's one of them. Uh, and I'm excited to present to you now. You guys are going to be able to listen to back to back two panels that I was on one panel where Michael and I were just chit-chatting about the early days of Bitcoin. And in the second panel, we added some folks on, Tom Malloy, uh, Courtney, and a bunch of other people to talk about the different projects that they're doing in film and NFTs, in Bitcoin, uh, took some questions from the crowd, and had a lot of fun. So I love bringing you guys some of those live recorded shows. Uh, I'm excited. Enjoy. And I'll see you all in a few days. So... Um, speaking of OGs, it's my great pleasure to uh, have our first um, fireside chat with um, one of the founders of the Bitcoin Foundation, which is where I first got my exposure to Bitcoin in early 2013. Um, he's uh, a legend in the industry for many reasons, and we're going to get into some of that now. Uh, Charlie Shrem. Charlie, can you come up here? Okay, so um, we first met in 2013, and uh, those were heady times for you. Um, you were 21, 22 years old. Oh, yeah. And um, were one of the real pioneers of founding the industry. Tell us what the days of like five cent Bitcoin were like. Those, <laughs> I wish I had more. I remember my, when we had, we had, we had started BitInstant, actually, like uh, we all paid ourselves uh, salary in Bitcoin. And I remember very distinctly, I was making like 400 Bitcoin a week, which was only like $300. Uh, yeah, I wasn't even paying myself like a six figure amount. This was early because back then, uh, you were starting kind of Bitcoin companies, you know, quote unquote, and I mean, companies like two people sitting in their mom's basement who throw up like a single page website, uh, is, is we were, we were starting these, these businesses to like service the existing industry, which existed just in like a few different chat groups. There were no physical events. Your event was probably one of the first events ever 
in the history of, of crypto. And the fact that you're still running and everything is like a testament to how amazing this is. And I hope this continues for, for decades to come. And this becomes like known as like the, you know, that famous Linux conference that still goes on every year or whatever. Um, but they were, they were amazing times. They were different times. Uh, I would say the major difference is that no matter the biggest competitor or the smallest competitor, it was a very even playing field. And everyone agreed that let's grow this Bitcoin pie together before we kind of fight over it. And that was like the biggest thing. And I don't know when that changed. It's not a bad thing to, you know, you need competition, but it was nice to have like, at least like a, a few years of, of no competition. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think it started changing as early as 2014. I wrote a, uh, a an article for, I think it was Barron's uh, or, or, or venture venture beat. I wrote, I was writing a lot of thought leadership pieces in those days. And I think I called it the Bitcoin civil war. And it was basically the VCs that were coming in and trying to go and say, we need more regulation. And the OGs were saying, no, no, we're a new paradigm. You need to get used to us. And so I'd say when like Andreessen Horowitz came in and they were really early, people forget how early they were. I mean, they were actually um, in many ways, the um, spark between be, behind me creating um, Bit Angels in May of 2013 with David Johnston, because I went to the, uh, the you know, the first Bitcoin Foundation conference, your, your you know, group's conference um, in May of 2013. So, you know, nine years ago. And I noticed that and I guess that was the first conference of more than maybe 70 or 80 people because there was one in 2011 that I guess people it was so small people took a group picture afterwards. But this was a thousand people. Right. And I remember meeting David, uh, who's now like you know, one of my BFFs, and I actually got him to move to Puerto Rico even. But um, he had been in Bitcoin for about a year longer than me, which back then was a big deal. Right. Because I remember when we had, when we had the first Bit Angels. So the, 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 the reason why I started BitAngels was I noticed that there was an announcement that Coinbase had raised a $5 million round um, and, and the lead was Andreessen Horowitz. I was like, that's a big VC. And then I saw Ripple had raised $2 million from Union Square. And I was like, that's a big VC. Where are the angels? And David said, well, they kind of just are around, but the, you have to get It was Roger Veer. Roger Veer was the only angel. He yeah. was the only one investing... You know, I never even understood what the term VC even meant. I don't, I still don't, even though I work now for, I'm a general partner in a, in a, in a VC fund out of Florida, Druid Ventures, I still have a huge amount of imposter syndrome. Like when we're sitting on investment committees and companies are asking us, like, help us fill the holes or the gaps, or are you investable? And people look for me. It's like, I never studied VC or investing. I never studied anything. It was just kind of like learning about Bitcoin, uh, you know, in in my basement or whatever. And I was working for, for my Charlie, cousin. most of the best VCs yeah. are ones that started as operators. Mark Andreessen is arguably the best VC in the entire world right now. He started out, you know, writing code and created the first web browser as a college student. And then he went out and had $3 billion exits. And then he's like, okay, it's time to be a VC now. You, you talk about bit angels too. It's like the only companies really that were investable back then were, like you said, Coinbase, Ripple, BitInstant, and like BitPay. So I remember yeah. when I was sitting with David in like a Panera Bread. So we're not sitting at like, you know, Cafe Roma or right. somewhere really. We're sitting at Panera and we're, you know, got laptops out and um, and his other partner was there or whatever. And, and he said, yeah, we're doing this whole angel group with Michael and we're going to be investing in the industry. And I'm like, what's an industry? <laughs> what does that even mean? Who are you investing in? But little did I know they were tens of thousands of people around the world that were like budding 
starting to build things and right. needed money. And, you know, you see all the companies and all the, the projects today that kind of launched out of BitAngels, and that is the industry. And, and I think it's a very good point. I mean, um, you know, I, I met David just having a beer on the rooftop and within like 10 minutes, we were like, you know, just bonded at the hip because we had very similar visions. And, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, why is there an angel group? And he's like, I don't know. Why don't we start one? And I came up with the name Bit Angels. He he literally on the fly set up the website and said, "Hey, we're around a bunch of people here. There might be six or seven angels. Let me put a post on uh, Bitcoin Reddit, which was not a very large group, and maybe we'll get six or seven people to show up. We got thirty people to show up at a lunch table the next day, and Roger showed up. I didn't know who he was at the time. I was just asking everybody, "How long have you been in Bitcoin?" Everybody's like, uh, two months, three months." And Roger's like. 2010. I was like, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so Roger was there. Vinny Lingham was there. Jared Kenna was there. I know you, you just had the uh, dinner with him last night. And, and so some of the real, I, uh, um, Chad, uh, uh, from Paxos. Uh, oh yeah. Ray or what? No, um, Chad, 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 I can never pronounce his Kiscaria. last name. Yeah. Cascaria. Yeah. Um, I mix his name up with a Puerto Rican friend of mine. It's a, the, also has a, a C in a lot of letters, but at any rate, um, he was there um, that with Liberty City Ventures, which is the VC, it then funded ITBIT and that became Paxos. And he left and now he's uh, one of the most successful exchange operators around. So the, the whole vision in those days was, as you said, go and have people with Bitcoin, deploy those Bitcoin into the ecosystem to make wallets, to make exchanges, because otherwise it's never going to grow to the next level that we all believe it can. What was your vision of where uh, Bitcoin could be when you got it in 2012? I really always thought that it would just be Bitcoin forever. I didn't, the idea of, of smart contracts and like building on top of blockchain, that concept didn't exist. Um, the whole idea was to create, you know, for me, I really, when I fell in love with Bitcoin and I really understood it on a very deep level and I restudied really every word and read everything and, and really felt it. And then started, and I met with, with, with Roger Vere and Eric Voorhees, who ended up working for me at BitInstant. The, you know, and actually the, the perfect quote that I ever heard was, you know, I wasn't into the anarchism, uh, anarcho-capitalist world. I obviously like, I believe in, in freedom and liberty and things like that, but I wasn't about like violence or taking one thing down to bring another thing up. I never really understood like how does how will this Bitcoin thing fit in? And someone told me, Charlie, we're not trying to end the Fed. We're trying to transcend the Fed. And the idea was like, let's create a better alternative uh, uh, community. And so if you, if you say like, what's Bitcoin's uh, uh, place in the world? It's the essence. It was the community. All cryptocurrencies, all blockchains, all tokens, all protocols exist today because they get their roots from the ideas and the technology behind Bitcoin. But we didn't, it's so weird because if I had even had a little bit of a vision, I would have, you know, it would have been very different. I was really just a young kid flying by the seat of my pants. Just here I was, I found something that none of the other kids in Brooklyn were doing. This was just my thing. No one could tell me I'm wrong or give me crap about it. And here are my friends. We're all a bunch of misfits on the internet. And this, that's all I wanted. That's all I ever cared about. And that's all I ever wanted it to be. And you brought up, you know, the transition with the VCs and you kind of remind me about something. It was, there was a big struggle that I had because so, so again, I didn't understand how to raise money. So we had this bit instant idea and we wanted to, to make it possible for people to get, 
is, you know, Bitcoin as fast as possible. And we had all these deals with like Walmart and, and Walgreens and CVS. And at one point we were a huge amount of the volume, but my mom gave me the, well, basically she loaned me money against the money given to me in my bar mitzvah. So like that was the first seed investment. And then getting the second, you know, getting more money was just Roger over Skype telling me, send me, tell me where to send the Bitcoin. Right. So that wasn't very difficult. I went on like an internet TV show, but then that's when the VC started entering. And all of a sudden when BitInstant was growing, you had groups of people who were like the Bitcoin OGs who wanted to continue investing in BitInstant. But then you had traditional VC groups, like, like eventually Cameron and Tyler who ended yes. up investing, but there were others too. They were the existing VCs. And here I was like being pulled in very different directions because at one respect, I wanted to build this system to transcend the world system and make it make people more free and to, and to enjoy the world on, a, on an equal playing field, like kind of the similar things of the French Revolution where, you know, the guy who cleans the trash can be the president. I wanted to see the same thing with Bitcoin. We have this huge amount of, of inequality in the world. Um, but then you have the traditional VC world who was like, you got to regulate and make money. And obviously, the answer is always in the middle. But when you're well, I think a, that's the difference between angels and uh, and professional money managers that are VCs, right? Um, the angel ecosystem, just in general, is ten times the size of the venture capital industry. It's just harder to track down. You know, in other words, there are millions of angel investors, people who just simply, you know, are looking for a better return than zero point zero one percent on their money. And, um, and maybe even a better return than DeFi. <laughs> and so they're like saying, you know, Hey, I'm going to take, I mean, Jason Calacanis says, you know, if you're savvy and you, and you, and you want to go and, you know, make better money, take 5% of your, uh, capital and, and invest it into uh, startups and just, you know, you just have to make sure that you know your field and like hang out with other investors who can go and do group due diligence with you. And that's really what BitAngel is all about. And, you know, when you go in, the greatest thing from an entrepreneur's perspective about angel investors is it's typically friendly money, right? It's kind of like just beyond the friends and family. Your friends and family was your bar mitzvah money, right? Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, you hopped right from the bar mitzvah to the Winklevoss twins, right? And that's when, as soon as you get your first VC dollar, then you have participating preferred rights. You have yeah. monthly board meetings. Handcuffs. Handcuffs, yeah. yeah. And so I was advised, because uh, I advise a lot of uh, companies now as well as invest in them, and I'll advise them, it's like, you know, don't be timid about going out and getting angel money. Make sure it's the right angel money. Um, but wait as long as possible, maybe even never, um, until you get your first venture money, because that comes with a whole new set of responsibilities, because it's not angels saying, hey, we're going to go and try to help you do this and that. We got 30 companies. We're having fun doing this. We know one or two are going to make our money back. You know, if it's you, great. If it's not, no big deal. Um, as opposed to people who are being paid a paycheck to go and manage a billion dollars of somebody else's money. And they get their LP meetings. They're like, what the hell has happened with this company here? And this, yeah, and they're there? getting their salary regardless. They're yeah. getting their salary regardless of how well they do or how, you know, how not well they do. And it's a much longer time horizon. VCs, unfortunately, there's a lot of super benefits, but just while we're on this subject, uh, their model is um, if one out of five or 10 does well, then they're happy. The other, it's, it's, it's you know, it's sunk cost or whatever. Um, angel investing, it's like very, very emotional. So there's that, which can be a disadvantage at the same time. But usually when you're starting something really small and new, I agree. If you can always just take angel investing until you have 
a product where you could say no. Like if right. someone offers you and you can negotiate, you know, we all know that the best time to make a deal is when you really don't want the product. It's fun, actually. I look forward to those. Like, it's like, oh, this guy really wants me to buy this, but I don't want it at all. So I'm just going to have fun with it. And it's like, you learn a lot about negotiating and people, like how quickly folks will break down their, you know, their barriers or walls. And you actually learn how people negotiate. It's a lot of fun to do that. I, I didn't trust my gut until a few years ago. And now being able to trust your gut on some of these things, let's look Priceless. back. Every, if you look back 10 years, we've all had opportunities to invest in products that we love, whether it's scotch tape or like something, just things that we use, think what you use on a day-to-day -day basis, just invest in those things. I look back, I'm like, ah, I should have invested in that oatmeal company. They really like, you know, I should have invested in this, just even household stuff. Uh, all the crypto products and services that I use. And that's why I, you know, I like what you're doing because you're saying, I love this company. I love this product. Okay. I'm going to get involved in it because I know that I'm going to use it or right. I need this. Right. Exactly. And, and, and so that's, that's, you know, one of the big things about angel investing in, in general and in this industry in particular. Um, when, when you look at sort of the way that the industry has grown, um, from the early days to today, I would say that, you know, even though we're talking about going into a crypto winter and there was a post on Reddit about like, you know, why Combinator is saying it's going to be the worst time ever for raising money. I think for at least people in, in crypto, this is an amazingly great time to be an entrepreneur. Um, first of all, in a, in a, in between bull markets, you don't have the fluff to compete with. Yes. Um, you're actually, the tourists go away and it's, you're left with the really, you can get great team members without having to be like, well, I just got an offer of like, they're going to give me like $500,000 a year plus 10% of the company. Now they're like, I could use a job, you know? Valuations go down. Valuations go not, down. Yeah, people are being more honest with you. But now that's from the investor perspective, but from the entrepreneur perspective, I'll come to companies saying, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't raise when it was $60,000 Bitcoin. I'm screwed. It's just like, have you raised any equity yet? No, just the token. So the nice thing is that most projects now, unless they're just purely like a, a platform, and even then you could have, you know, your, your Ethereum, and then you could start your consensus to, to, to provide tools for it. Most companies now in this ecosystem can find a way to create value by selling equity, can find a way to get a useful token. If you don't have a useful token, don't do one, but can find a way of getting a useful token to power the ecosystem and can find some way of getting NFTs um, into their equity mix to control governance, to be able to like, you know, um, this, the, have NFT enterprise. There's so many ways you can use NFTs. And if you look at the gaming industry right now, something like, you know, um, Star Atlas, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. they ended up going before they raised a nickel of equity or they raised a nickel of tokens. They sold several million dollars of characters in a game that won't ship for three years. And that, I mean, I've never seen something where you have three buckets you can sell. And one of them, the NFTs actually counts as revenue. Yep. Our, our friend, our mutual friend, Brock Pierce says, bear markets are for building bull markets are bullshit. And it's so true. Every single company from BitAngels to Coinbase to BitInstant and every company, you can name me any company right now that's super successful in Bitcoin or crypto, they started during a bear market. And Ethereum. It, Ethereum. It's all, it's all been started in a need. Like, I remember the day, like, I, when I first found out about Bitcoin, there was this huge run up to a dollar and I was like so excited. So I bought some and I like crashed back down to 10 cents. I was like, all right. Now I got to pr provide some value to the industry so or to, to, the, to the Bitcoin forums or whatever.
And so that's when it all started. So these, these are the times. It's the scariest times. But it's the best times because at the end of the day, we know this thing is, is here to stay. We know now it's going to be a multi-decade, you know, 100-year horizon. This will, version 1.0 will outlast me. No, sorry. I, yeah, I'll be long gone before this whole, we can even call crypto 1.0, where people will look back 100 years from now. We're so new. Uh, scary. Well, the last Bitcoin yeah. where they have to figure out how to incentivize people after that doesn't get mined until the year 2140. So yeah. unless, unless we have great life extension technologies, none of us will be here in 2140. Someone asked, like, uh, I forgot who it was, like Scaramucci, what inning are we in with crypto? And he said, we haven't even started spring training yet. Like, it's so beginning. You can, what I like about what's, you know, I, I asked myself and I was going to ask you, like, do you get jaded? How have you been around the industry so long and not kind of got tired a little bit and come back and forth. Like you said, Jared Kenner, we were having dinner. He disappeared for like six years. Uh, most people uh, aren't around. If, if I had not had my forced sabbatical, I may not have been around today too. Um, so, so yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of good to go through all these, all these multi-decades. Well, I, and I think for me, I still find things exciting about uh, the builders in this industry. And when that stops, I'll look for something else to do. I mean, I, I uh, was very early in the web. I was very early in um, in social media. And both of those industries have become calcified, right? I mean, the web basically got controlled by the stacks. It's all like the big, you know, you can't really go and, and have like a, uh, a new startup in the web very easily unless your uh, first question is like, how are you going to beat, you know, Google yeah. and Yahoo? And, and, and well, I guess you sell to them, right? And um, in social media, when I got involved in social media in like 2001, I got involved in the web in 93. Um, those were, those had the same kind of like early day feels of excitement that you did in like early 2013 and, and before. I can't even imagine what it was like in 2011 when it was a dollar. But, um, but even in 2013, it was just very exciting. And with social media, it went from like all these things you could do organically to everything being, you know, controlled by Facebook ad budgets, right? In about a, within less than a decade. And that has not happened to crypto because every time you try to get somebody controlling a part, you know, my wife's industry and in my industry. And so it was always separate what she does with acting and voiceover and what I do with Bitcoin and crypto was always very two different things. I didn't really understand that industry from, from any other perspective except from the actor perspective. And the, what I know from the actor perspective is that it's very impossible to break out and break through. But also I learned that filmmakers, it's almost impossible to, for them to do anything. And at the end of the day, I always assumed that every script was a good script. It's not true. Most scripts are bad. I'm lucky that I partnered with someone who's a brilliant screenwriter. And so his scripts are all good scripts. But other than that, uh, and I actually met someone who I'm excited to read his script. I think he's here, Shoki. So I'm excited to read his script too. But, um, you know, so, so there was this kind of like very big separation in that world. And, uh, we met Tom, uh, just as a fluke really just on, on Twitter. And yeah, a year later, we, we just produced two movies together, both written by Tom. And we're really excited for the world to see them very, very soon. But in my own personal experiences, putting these, these projects together. And if you look at some of the the best movies of all time, putting those budgets together was like, you know, like building a Bitcoin startup in 2011. Friends and family, loans, maxing out your credit cards. And then you finally make something good and you beat the odds and you make something good and everything like that. 
then you have to take any deal that you can because distribution controls the whole thing. So I saw that as like, wow, here's a huge industry that you can really like shake up and fracture. And then using uh, what I know from crypto and what I learned from, from Courtney and Tom, I think we can do something really great here with Define. So I'm really excited about that. So, um, you know, when I first got into uh, and I've spent a lot of years in uh, in Hollywood, having you know started my first agency in Los Angeles, I never wanted to do anything directly for the entertainment industry because I saw how many PR firms there are in the entertainment industry. So I became the tech guy that everybody partnered with when they wanted to do, you know, entertainment plus Internet, entertainment plus plus blockchain, entertainment plus social. And it worked well that way. But um, when I first got into, into uh, crypto, I realized that boy, there's got to be a solution somewhere to this arcane film financing pyramid that blockchain can can solve. And now I see there's a number of uh, uh, companies even here who are, who are doing different takes yeah. on it. Now, yours is really uh, the first one I've seen that's almost like a crypto first because you're saying, hey, here's DeFi, where most people don't even realize they could be making 10% pretty risk-free on their money from DeFi instead of zero point whatever. Um, and then between that and film grants and everything else, you can go and have a bucket that you can then be able to go and have your investments tracked and also have additional return that is helping to fund it. So why don't you talk about some of the specifics of how DeFi works? I mean, you 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 talked exactly that and I'm ex and we'll when we do the panel we'll we can get more into it in a little bit but it, it's exactly that I was like don't want to steal the thunder too much but just I, give the overview everyone was is trying to do uh the same thing with with NFTs and I like all that and, and I'm definitely invested in a lot of those platforms and marketplaces but I wanted to go back to my roots a little bit and 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 Tom and I and our other partner Sean we really spent many many hours like throwing a lot of other you know bad ideas away to try to solve this problem. And we really, really spent a lot of time getting into it. And what we figured out was, okay, you, you have these very secure assets that make up a film budget. So for example, every state, most 99% of countries, actually the only state that doesn't do it is, one of the only states that doesn't do it is Florida. Um, um, but countries around the world will give you a tax credit if you film in their, in their country or state. And that could be anywhere from 20 to 40%. Most movies put that in their budget. Like that's part, I have not, I've not yet seen a budget that doesn't include using the tax credit for part of the budget. So if you know you're going to be spending 500,000, you're going to get 200 in, in two years. That 200 is actually part of the money you need to make in order to even finish the film. But not only that, a lot of times if you have, you know, different pieces in place beforehand, you can get different. And I've only been in it one year. Tom's had a film distribution company for, for a very long time and has made 18 movies. And so I'm still learning. But reading all these budgets and being a numbers guy and a math guy and trying to, like, see the waterfall and how the actors and the producers and the filmmakers make money. Because, again, film is America's biggest export. A lot of people are making a lot of money here. So... How I wanted to figure out how to do that. And so we figured out that if we can take those, you know, studios are writing you paper that they'll give you a million dollars when you finish it upon delivery. So you have all these people and companies offering you, th you know, money when you finish or when you hit certain parts of the way. And then so I'm wondering, okay, so other than private financiers, where is that money coming from? Well, it's either coming from hedge funds or banks. There are film banks, and I read those contracts, man. They charge, they start at 
to 15% and go up. It is insane. And I'm like, whoa, we can bring this yield to DeFi. What if crypto folks holding our stable coin that we launch uh, could essentially get that same yield from those same type of secured assets? So we're doing looking at NFTs in a different way, but we're actually turning a tax credit or the film itself into the NFT. And the stable coin is then backed by those NFTs uh, in case, you know, something were to happen. But then all the, in- the filmmakers are paying their interest rate directly on chain. And then it's being dispersed to all the token holders. So all the financial transparency that exists that didn't exist in crypto is gone. And Tom can tell you more about that, all that stuff, but it's like, the, and you, you're, you're, all the middlemen are gone and all the vertical integration, you could do so many things. You can potentially fund hundreds, if not thousands of film projects and regular people who are holding crypto can have a piece of all of these or like the interest secure rights. And, um, and it could be really cool. And you can have essentially, I mean, down the road, you can have people be able to learn how to put together projects to be able to at least get onto the defined protocol so they can get liquidity to move forward on their way. And that's kind of where, where we are right now. Great. And I, I know we've gone over our time, but I'm, I'm never going to like, uh, you know, cut a great interview with Charlie Short. Um, so, uh, but that I think is a good segue because the next panel is, uh, is, is panel with, uh, Joyce Chow moderating and, and Tom and a few other folks. So, uh, uh and we'll save the questions for that panel. Um, but, uh, let's give it up for Charlie Schramm. Thank you so much. You can stay here and I'll, I'll go there. All right. Okay. So everyone, thank you. So up next we have, uh, the disrupting the film industry with NFTs panel. We have Charlie or moderator Joyce Chow. She'll come right up here. Panelist Charlie Shrem. I'm here. <laughs> um, Alexander Emmertai, producer of Antara and the inventor you of hear a the joke? NFTs. Well, I don't. Uh... <laughs> Tom Malloy, American actor and filmmaker, and Andreas Cole, uh, uh, CBDO, Mint Lair, and Miguel Faust, the creator of Calitada. Caladita dot film. Caladita, sorry. <laughs> do you have this mic? Because I, I thought of Tom because he loves this joke. But uh, why don't why don't I want why don't Bitcoiners like Ferraris? Because it's owned by Fiat. No, no. Oh. Did I say it wrong? Did I say it wrong? I did say it. Oh, As shoot. always, Charlie does a little off on the joke. He says, why do Bitcoiners love Lamborghinis? Because Ferrari is Fiat. That's the joke. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't know what that means, you probably shouldn't be in this room, I would imagine. Okay. Erica, thank you for introducing everybody. As you can tell, we are going to have a very fun panel. But we're going to first start with Charlie. Charlie, because most of you guys know Charlie anyway, because of Bitcoin, obviously, and film. Charlie, it's really obvious now, since Michael bridged into it, why you are so interested in film. But first of all, other than Courtney, Courtney, can you stand up real quick? (laughs) The beautiful Courtney, right? Which is one of the main reasons why Charlie's so interested in film with Tom. Exactly that. I just wanted to to work with my wife on something really cool project together. So it was a, almost like a blessing from God that we met, that we met Tom and it all worked out. And Tom, you're the bridge besides Courtney. What made you interested in working in the crypto space? 
Well, I guess, you know, I'd always been a tech guy since I was a little kid. I mean, took apart my first computer at seven years old, programmed Turbo Pascal. Anybody know who that is here? Uh, yeah, there we go, uh, for a long time. And, uh, you know, I mean, literally, I, as somebody said, or Charlie, I think, said, I own a film sales and distribution company. But, like, I'm also, I'm the founder and the owner, and it's like, I also do the tech for the company. Like, I built all the databases for the company myself. And so, that was always an aspect that I jumped on. I built all the websites for the company. And when I met Charlie, and, uh, you know, we kind of talked about Bitcoin, and it, I went right away, this is this is the future. I got excited about that. And then we immediately started looking for ties, but it just took a little while to find exactly what that yeah. was that made sense. Well, I'm going to give them a little bit bit of background about Tom because Tom is and always has been very humble, but he's been one of the cornerstones of entertainment in Southern California. <laughs> you, you have been. And besides distributing films and producing films and being an actor, he really does know what's going on. So when Charlie and Tom are, well, decided to define, it made me more excited than ever because here was somebody that was really in the space, both from a crypto space as well as a film space that really have, if you want to call it, the best interests of the industry at heart. Yeah. So that's what makes it exciting. You know, in, in, in just to piggyback on that as, uh, and I, I don't want to dominate anything, but it's like in the independent film world, that was always my thing. There's studio people, and Charlie, when he was referencing people putting movies, uh, money together for movies, that's the indie film world. And I've kind of risen to the top of the totem pole in the indie film world. Uh, the studio world is different, and that would be the big kind of corporations, Universal, MGM, and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, I wrote the book on film financing, which was called Bankroll. That was the best-selling book on film financing. And the key is, when you're doing projects like these projects, there's always, you know, kind of a solution, like a math right. problem to solve, you know, the right. math problem of how do you raise smart money? How do you get money back to investors? How do you do all those things in the right way? And that's what we, uh, I guess we were talking about. Absolutely. One of the things about the film industry is there's something called Hollywood accounting. <laughs> the, the waterfall <laughs> studio level is studio level. Yeah. yeah. Yes. yeah. Distribution. Yeah. So when you are disrupting the film industry, Tom, tell us your vision with Define and how you see it disrupting it and this shuffle game of accounting. And then we'd <laughs> also like to hear Charlie's perspective also. Sure. And I, I do have to apologize for my voice being at the Cannes Film Festival all week and, and uh, working as selling films from in the morning to the evening and then going out all night, which is work, you know, and uh, that's so my voice is a little shot. But um I guess the key that I would say as far as, well, define is, is a different thing. And, I, and, and I'm not a huge fan of the word disruption. You know what I mean? I, li I like shaking things up, but disrupting it is, is tough because in a lot of aspects of the film business have been around a long time. You know, and somebody trying to create a new distribution, like, you know, people say, let's distribute the film on the blockchain. It's like eyeballs, folks. You know what I mean? Like eyeballs matter. There's, you know, people talk about the law of attraction. It's about the law of affection is, is really how many people you affect. It's basically eye eyeballs. And so for to get somebody to release a film on a blockchain or something like that, well, God, you need, you know, 10 million people on that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's tough to do. So what we're talking about is financing secure assets in film. Okay. And the, the key behind this is stablecoin 2.0, which we call We've been calling things. You saw what happened to Terra. And what is it, eight cents now? And it's, it's uh, unlisted. It, so there was no assets behind it. And we got the inspiration from a stable coin that was backed by houses. 
physical assets, right? And so what our thing was, okay, how can we use films as assets, but not just films where we're going, hey, it's a great screenplay, you know what I mean? That's not the key. It's things like tax credits. It's things like MGs, which are advances on films, or negative pickup deals, which is when they pay you when you deliver the film to them. So that's paper. It's financing the paper. Now, there are companies that do that, as Charlie referenced, right? But they do charge, you know, Forest Road charges huge interest rates, right? So what about if we could do the same thing, keep a stable coin behind it that people can uh, buy and get that exactly like Michael was saying, a real interest rate instead of 0.01% that the banks do. You know what I mean? It's, it's let's get real interest rates so people can hold that behind there. And that's a liquidity pool that we can use to fund those projects. Can I ask something? Sure. I'm just wondering, because when Charlie um, explained it, I also was wondering if we're saying that the interest rates are outrageous in the market for film financiers. Uh, but you also want to offer a good interest rate for people who are buying the stable coin. How, how do you balance those two things so that you know the interest rate for filmmakers gets down a bit, but also is attractive for the investors? Yeah, it's a good. We, we could both answer. It's a it's a very good question. And and to be honest, the the interest rates that you get in in private lending, in mortgages, and hard money lending, like Forest Road and all these other lending against secure assets, the re they charge so much money because they they do the due diligence and they originate. Um, where in DeFi, a lot of those yields, as we all see, they're coming way down now. I mean, you could barely even earn any percentage on your Bitcoin anymore. Uh, in order to do, to get any yield above, I would say six percent right now, it, it's it's going to be uh, over under collateralized and a lot higher risk. So we can cut the interest rates by half. But but to be, my vision uh, in you know a decade from now is I don't want people to leave the crypto industry. If you look at stable coins now, USDT and USDC backs everything. It's all liquidity for every other crypto, for our industry. When someone raises money, they keep it in USDC, USDT. That's just dollars sitting in a bank account. So it's not, how is that, you know, a whole world that people are never going to leave? And then, so, so, so then you had Do Kwan who tried to launch uh, an algorithmic stable coin, which some people have been trying to do that for a very long time. And it's a beautiful idea because the idea is you have this stable coin that's backed by maybe some other cryptos or whatever. And then here you can have a stable asset that never goes up in value and people can, can, can do treasury management. They can build their businesses off of it, but never have to leave the crypto world. But that failed. So the idea is how can we create on-chain businesses that create profit, and that profit gets put into, this, into the stablecoin holders. And therefore, my view with the stable 2.0 is that something like USDT will actually be backed by our token and other tokens that are doing the same thing, but for maybe houses or for other industries. And that's like the future. So like, for example, your company could issue its own stablecoin and you're paying your profits out on, you know, to all the stablecoin holders, other stablecoins will back themselves by you. And that's the future. Yeah. I, mean. <laughs> I go, does that answer your question? He goes, yeah. Because <laughs> I was wondering about like specific interest rate that you guys were targeting. We don't know exactly don't know. yet. It's still being built, but the bottom line is, and you know, if banks are charging 0.1% and we can get 5% APY, that's, that's fantastic. You know what I mean? And that's, so it, what we were referring to before at the Forest Road is something that we in the, in the film financing world we call expensive money. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, you really need it. You're desperate for it. So they, they charge you a huge interest rate, you know, but those are two different ones. We're talking about earning one, you know, earning interest rate for the stable coin versus 
getting charged an interest rate on a loan, right? Yari, good. I just want to make sure you understood what I was saying. <laughs> Thank you. And Andreas Mintlayer, you happen to be a big fan of Charlie and started, well, let's just say what you started with Mintlayer, you had Charlie in mind. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So um, Mintlayer is a Bitcoin sidechain for tokenization and smart contracts. Basically, the idea is uh, to create a whole new blockchain, but which is tied to Bitcoin at the consensus level, um, inheriting security and decentralization from Bitcoin. And also, most importantly, I would say providing this interoperability with BTC, which uh, the DeFi space is uh, uh, really demanding at the moment. If you look at uh, the total value locked in, in DeFi, um, generally right now, a, a very significant proportion of that is in pegged and wrapped versions of Bitcoin. And the reason for that is because... Uh, um, Bitcoin is still the most uh, trusted uh, value. It's the hardest money. I think it will remain so. And uh, I think that's something where uh, Charlie and I uh, uh, agree. And um, But the problem is that with these pegged and wrapped versions of Bitcoin on other protocols, you are essentially trusting these federations that uh, that uh, maintain these these pegs. And uh, what we're trying to do with Mintlayer is to uh, create the first uh, uh, DeFi protocol that uh, is really natively compatible with Bitcoin and which allows uh, uh, users to directly swap BT real BTC for uh, DeFi assets. And so that's uh, something I think uh, rematches uh, what uh, DeFi is trying to do. And uh, it would be a, a great place for them to issue their stablecoin. When, when we see it all the time, when when these blockchains get big enough, they become uh, 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 hacking honeypots and they break. We see it all. I mean, you, you, it happens so much now every day that it, it's just not even being reported anymore. So really, the only solution is to build uh, uh, a new a new blockchain that's tied to the consensus of Bitcoin. It's the only because it's un, unhackable. I think there's this uh, thesis, um, uh, this, it's almost become a trope or a cliche in the, in the, the crypto world that uh, uh, other layer ones are essentially paving the way forward for Bitcoin. The, 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 all of these uh, innovations are, are essential, but because Bitcoin is anti-fragile, because it's a distributed peer-to-peer -peer, uh, open source uh, network, um, it, it has this ability to, to evolve, it, not necessarily by changing itself, but by adding additional layers on top of it. Um, and, and in that sense, you know, uh, you know it, it, at least as a theory, but um, so far uh, there's a lot missing in the Bitcoin ecosystem and, and that's what we're trying to fill in. That's great, film financing. Let's get to NFTs now. Okay, <laughs> so let's see, Alexander, the producer of Antar and inventor of movie NFTs. Well, I don't want to have that title anymore of movie NFTs. There's so many people in the space now who are on sort of, um, you know, this was the last year when we first got in touch and uh, Michael played our, our sizzle reel out in Dubai um, when we first sort of announced that we were going to do this. Uh, we dropped, Arabian Camels dropped just after Board Apes last year, like very close. And I, I guess I was inspired to do that because we initially fed up with like the film financing process. Mm -hmm. We were inspired to do it by crypto. And then we went down that sort of garden path and we realized, okay, there's a lot of sort of regulatory red tape for all different parts of the world. And we thought, okay, NFTs, we're selling art and what we do with the proceeds of that, you know, those art sales is, is really back to us, so to speak. And we sort of saw that like the whole NFT space and having a community, it's a great way to grow an IP, you know? And if you look down the sort of the horizon of what you can do with movies and NFTs, it's got something that no other industry has. There's like the merchandising, there's licensing, there's toys, there's branding, there's graphic novels, there's so many. I mean, if, if George Lucas had have done what he did now, 
I think it would be so much, like, not so much more interesting, but just imagine how, you know what I mean? With the technology and the reach and it would have been, you know, phenomenal. So, um, so yeah, so we, we have this uh, $45 million epic, which we're doing a lot of it via um, NFTs. And I think if the market was how it was last year, we would have been able to do the full amount. But as you know, the market is very different this year with, uh, you know, very saturated and things like that. So, um, but I think it's a it's an incredibly exciting time for movies in particular as an industry for NFTs. Did, did I hear you cor- correctly? Did you say $45 million? Yeah. Um, you know what? When we, when we, I mean, it's fantastic to be with people in the room who are talking about merging NFTs with DeFi. That's the ultimate, I think, the ultimate phase of evolution, yeah. you know? We all want it to be like the stock market, but just a little bit underneath. So it, it has those sort of, uh, uh, you know, traits, let's say. Um, but with DeFi, it becomes a whole new multidimensional situation. So, um, so we're, yeah, of course, tax credits and some traditional TradFi. And, uh, but yeah, mostly NFTs. That's awesome. I still remember the story coming out and um, some of the feeds people saying, did you see those camels? It's a movie <laughs> NFT. Did you see that? <laughs> Everybody gets excited. It's confusing sometimes because people say, "Oh, it's a cartoon animation." I'm like, "Oh." Well, no, like the cool not. thing is that if you you were raising 45 million and, and you brought in 20 and you knew that you were going to be shooting somewhere that would give you 50% tax credit, mm-hmm. you Define could issue you that other 10 million almost instantly, and the token holders are the ones getting the getting paid the interest rate. So that's kind of where we fall into this. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, we should work together. And this, the cool thing is like, you know, web one is like a triangle, web two is like a pyramid, and then web three is like a sphere with all those pyramids intertwined, you know? And it's so amazing to hear people coming in from their own pyramid, and you can say, okay, that's a fantastic match for my pyramid. Otherwise, on your own, it's a hard life. You know, everyone who's been in crypto and NFTs, late nights, time zones, there's a lot to take on your shoulders. So it's so refreshing to hear people you know, coming in with their thing that, you know, you can collaborate with. And like, yeah, it's it's just a yeah, very exciting time. So on your NFTs, what worked well, what didn't, and what would you do differently if you were releasing it today? The biggest challenge is communication of your vision and what you're actually doing. A lot of people who under, understand the NFT space, they don't get the movie space. People who understand the movie space don't yeah, get the NFT space. My cousin is senior vice president of Sony. And when I try to explain things, he's just like, anyway, um, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, okay. Um, so we got to wait for people to catch up, you know, um, we're kind of still at the alphabet stage where people are just getting acquainted with NFTs and crypto and this and that. And when it can all intertwine together, I think that's when things get really colorful and multidimensional, you know, but I think communication, it's like trying to fit a rope through a, a pinhole. Like you've got Twitter spaces, you've got PR, you've got, it's still not enough. That's the biggest challenge to try and, you know, for something big like this, which a lot of people may not get initially, it's a challenge to tr- explain all of it A to Z. You need like a good two hours, you know. Yeah, you have to teach them to crypto teach. and then you have to teach them what you're trying to do within it. So it's like two, two problems. Yeah, it's very difficult. Well, and of course, we have to talk to Miguel too about NFTs and movies. Tell us about your experience with NFTs. Sure. Um, so I am a writer-director um, from Barcelona, and I am funding my first feature film, Calladita, with an NFT collection. Uh, basically, the whole project started a few years ago, three years ago, when I made the original short film that this movie is based on. It's called Calladita. And that short film did really well. It went to a lot of festivals internationally and eventually was bought for distribution in the US by HBO. And I've been working for you know three years in turning that story into a feature film. 
um, it went to I went to a few script labs and got great cast attached, etc. But then financing became very difficult here in Europe. Most of the tra- you know traditional financing for indie filmmaking comes from state uh, funds and public TV networks and things like that. And it's all a very opaque system and a very um, very tough system, and you know, especially for filmmakers that are starting out. So, because I had been in the NFT space for a while as a collector and enthusiast, I, I realized that there was an opportunity to garner the power of community and kind of crowdfunding using using NFTs, and that's what we did. I I fractionalized the short film into still frames and and videos of, of shots of the short film, created a collection of 2,400 NFTs, and started selling them on Ethereum uh, to to raise the money for for the film with, with 100% of the funding of the funds that we get from selling NFTs going straight into the budget of the movie. So essentially, it works kind of similar to a traditional crowdfunding model, but with the NFTs attached, that of course makes it a lot better because backers are getting a, a real asset that may or may not, but has a potential of, of, of having future you know, upside. And, and then, you know, it's a bit, the, the part that is a bit challenging is the revenue sharing part because that, that gets into, into legal um, problems with, with you know, securities and stuff. So we're not doing that per se, but we found a solution that we really like, which is the Cagadita DAO. Means that uh, 50% of the revenue of the movie is getting get put into a um, into a community treasury, a DAO that will be governed by all the holders, and they get to decide on what we do with that. So potentially, if the movie does very well, we can create a small indie film film studio out of Spain that is creating decentralized movies going forward, and we come back either my future projects or future projects of any other indie filmmakers that the DAO wants to support. Okay, so. If they buy an NFT, are they automatically part of the DAO? Yeah, I mean, the DAO doesn't exist yet because the DAO is designed to govern over the revenues of the film. So it makes no point to really have it running because running a DAO is expensive and, and, and tricky. So it, it, we will set it up when it makes sense because it has things to decide, basically. Okay, go ahead, Tom. So <clears throat> just to address something is that, you know, when we're talking about the financing that we're providing with Define, that's off of secure assets. The issue that I see with a lot of filmmakers that are NFTs or movies is much like Kickstarter when it, when it started is that here's the one thing I know about film financing. I've been doing this for 20 years now. The, the only solution is improve the project. That's it. <laughs> improve the project. Make it better. Make it better. Make it better. Add value. Add cast. Okay, add locations, add things to the project, make the script better. That's everything. Okay, everything else. And the mistake that I think a lot of filmmakers are doing is, yeah, let's raise money. You know, let's raise $10 million NFTs and then make shit. You know what I mean? It's like, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. Okay. So the key is, is it it just like Kickstarter, people thought magic money was just going to appear. You know, I'm going to make this focus on the project. The project is the most important thing. And anything else, NFTs should only add value. With us, we're looking at projects, these projects that are going to get the MGs or the ta- well, tax credit anybody could get if they qualify. But the key is an MG or something like that. It's only going to get it if it has uh, legit cast in it. You know what I mean? Like my, our, my, one of my friends, Sean Reddick, produced uh, Get Out and Black Klansman. It, there was a lot of money behind those movies when he started. So I asked him, I said, how much did you put to develop those projects? $100,000. He won an Oscar, by the way. Well, for both. $100,000 for Get Out to uh, start attaching cast to it and attach the project $120,000 for black clans. That's it. Then you put the cast on, right? Then you get that screenplay in order. Then you put a little more cast, you get the director. And then suddenly that money's easy to get. 
okay? Because now that project makes sense. So that's the issue that I think a lot of filmmakers, especially in Cannes, it's been frustrating all week, watching people say, yeah, let's put some NFTs out there so that magic money can appear in my bank account. What about the movie? Oh, we'll worry about the movie later. Okay, what, you got a good poster? You know, something like that. The key is you have to make the project better, so. I think I see a lot of people nodding their heads. I feel, they get it. I feel a bit attacked, so I'm going to respond if that's okay. No, I'm not attacking you. I'm just saying, I think that's the problem that people are just saying in general. Like, I don't know your project. I don't know your project. You know what I mean? Sure. But the key is, it, none of it matters if you don't have a good project. You can raise $100 million of NFTs, make a movie. If the movie's crap, no one's going to see it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that part. Uh, in our case, we have we have the short film that is a good proof of concept, same story, and was was acquired by HBO and won awards and traveled the world in festivals. We have a good cast attached, but it feels for, to me like, from what I'm getting from you, is as if the film industry uh, was perfectly efficient, as if all the good projects were, were getting made, which is not my experience. No, and no. no, they're not. <laughs> not you need access, access to liquidity. Yeah, it's a liquidity problem. Like, you know, those. it's exactly that. Yeah. And and that's why you want to be on Bitcoin. If you're doing crypto, that's where all the liquidity is. But uh, so far, there's uh, been this missing bridge to go from bit, real Bitcoin to uh, all of uh, these other investments. It's sure. true, though. It's a valid point. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of people coming into the space and they're going to, you know, make, raise $10 million on NFTs and they're going to spend it on caviar and they don't know anything about business, no commercial prowess, no corporate spine. 100%. And it's, it's important as well. Like, But um, it's good. One refreshing thing is all the people who are in the film three space who've been here, it's good that they're like already at a good level. You know, yeah, they've right. got their scripts, they've got their schedules, their budgets, they've done a short or they've, they've made a movie already and now they're doing the sequel with NFTs. It's, right. That's at least refreshing. Most of the people who are in the space, we know all of them. Like they're all pretty... At a good level. And Kickstarter was the same way. There was like a floodgate of, you know, people that just you know, attacked it afterwards. Like the early people that did Kickstarter were doing it for a reason. Everybody thought, I can get free money on Kickstarter and raise money for my movie. And then, you know, a billion people tried to raise their money on Kickstarter. So, yeah, it's that floodgate of yeah. crap. It's, uh, but like, for example, yeah. one of my executive producers is Jim Cummings. Um, he fundraised his film, his first feature, Thunder Road, with Kickstarter. Um no stars attached because he's the star and he was an up-and-coming director. Um, the film won South by Southwest, came here to Cannes for the ACID program. Only with distribution in France made its budget uh, four times its budget in, in the box office for the producers, not like box office, but like yeah. direct cash for producers. And in, in, in total made way more than, than its budget. So my point is that there are a lot of movies that are not getting made for whatever reason. And if there is enough people that want to back them, uh, and are inspired by the story, then there is a potential that those movies will be good and, and will have success. I mean, a lot of people... Definitely not secure, like, you know. They come into the space and some, there's some, sometimes sort of a, an anti-establishment tone to some of the projects, not just movie projects, all, all NFT projects. And yeah. it, it's kind of like commercial morality sometimes, as in they're using it as a card to, you know, to give credence to their, to their cause. But... At the same time, gatekeepers are there for a reason in Hollywood, you know? And there is like, uh, some of them do, not, like, not gatekeepers, but quality control, yeah. which is really important. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be a hybridized, inevitably, it's going to be a hybridized system of a little bit of quality control, but a little bit of freedom for creativity. Mm -hmm. and Yeah, it's know. really hard to make a good movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like herding cats. There's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. You guys have been absolutely fabulous. And as you can tell, even the panel <laughs> can be a little disruptive um, because Hollywood is rapidly changing as is blockchain space. But thank you very much, Alexander, Charlie, Tom, yes, Andreas, and Miguel. If you guys have questions, go ahead and 
Of course, ask him afterwards. Yes, quick question. Okay. Uh, I could ask him afterwards, but can you talk a little bit about the collateralization process? Because you know, in terms of being able to you know, have a film bond, make sure the film is made, actually make sure the money is applied the right way, which you guys have all talked about, that seems to be like one of the more difficult parts of the process because it almost requires centralization. Mm -hmm. um, quick question, Erica. I know we're getting close to time. Oh, okay. It's a, it's a good question. Or, I mean, I can answer it if, you, if you, we have a, a minute. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So we're not talking okay. about, see, you're, what you're talking about, because this is getting a little bit specific, you're talking about a film bond, and that's an insurance policy that they put on a film for the film to get made. I have never bonded one of my films in, ever. And the reason being is that if you get the good line producers, what are we talking? Oh, if you get the good line producers, I didn't know if they were saying something. Um, it, they'll do it under budget in the right way. You know what I mean? And the, but the worst part about a film bond is that the second the film, second you say, this is the last shot, take that and put it in the trash. You know, just spend 10% of your budget on that piece of paper, right? So I never want to do that. I want to put it on the screen. But the key is we're not funding those things. We're funding the solid assets like, you know, again, like a voltage picture. The friends of mine, like they'll say, oh, this is great script. You got that cast? Okay, you deliver it to us. We'll give you a million dollars. Okay, that's a paper from them from a reputable sales company. And we'll have a process of, of qualifying all those people. Yes. Then that we can give that money. Them making the film, that's really not on us. You know what I mean? At the end of the day. So, yeah. We the paper becomes the NFT. Yep. So that's the only point you have to rely on the existing legal frameworks around the world. But that's always going to exist. Everything you do is going to have to be legal and regulated and, and securitization and have good lawyers. But that's, that's the connection. That's where we bring in NFTs is that the actual paper becomes the NFT, and then the NFT sits in the smart contract of the stablecoin. Okay. Thank you, everyone. And go ahead and ask them questions afterwards, because they will be here. Thank you. And Erica, Thank you, Joyce. Thank you. <laughs>